0: Hi everyone, it's Cases and Controversies producer David Schultz here. Kimberly Robinson is out, but before she left, she and Greg Store recorded a really interesting interview about a case called Samia that the court will be hearing later this week. The case poses an interesting conflict between the Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate yourself versus the Sixth Amendment right to confront a witness in court. It involves an accused hitman who was in a joint trial with another defendant And he says his lawyers weren't allowed to properly cross-examine the testimony of his co-defendant who implicated him. Kimberly and Greg spoke to Michael Houston, a partner at Perkins Coie who just left the Solicitor General's office and who filed an amicus brief in the case. Here's their interview.
1: Joining us to talk about the case is Perkins Cooey, partner Michael Houston, who co-chairs the firm's appeals, issues, and strategy practice. He joined the firm after a stint with the U.S. Solicitor General's Office, and we're chatting with him today because Michael filed an amicus brief in the case on behalf of the National Association of Federal Defenders in support of Adam Samia. So thank you for being on with us.
2: I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So before we get into the weeds of the case, can you just remind listeners what the Sixth Amendment's confrontation clause is and how the Supreme Court has interpreted it? I was pretty surprised, I guess, that um, it's been uh, a while since we had really a confrontation case come to the justices again.
2: You're right. There was a stint where we saw several of them um, in a short period of years, but for the last several, we have seen far fewer. Um, So the Sixth Amendment guarantees every criminal defendant the right to confront the witnesses against him. Uh, The question that arises in this case and in a series of other cases that are relevant here is what happens when you have a joint criminal trial, two or more defendants being tried together, And one of them has made an out-of-court confession, but also exercises his Fifth Amendment constitutional right not to testify at trial. So to take just sort of a classic hypothetical that illustrates this, imagine you have one defendant, Smith, who tells the police, I was driving the car that night that the victim was shot, but Jones was the person who was the shooter. Smith and Jones are tried together And Smith invokes his Fifth Amendment right not to testify at trial. Now, that confession uh, is by Smith that he was involved in the crime is admissible against him under the rules of evidence. And it's obviously extremely powerful evidence against Jones as well. But the the question is, can the prosecution introduce that out-of-court confession against Jones consistent with the Sixth Amendment because— the defendant, Jones, will not have an opportunity to cross-examine Smith, who's not testifying.
3: So there is a Supreme Court case from a few decades ago called Bruton that tells us a lot about how the court interprets that that dynamic or interprets the provision and
2: deals with that dynamic. Can you tell us a little bit about the the Bruton rule and what's behind it? Sure. Yeah. To understand Samia, you really need to know three Supreme Court cases and where Samia sits in relation to them. And so I'll just cover them really quickly. The first one, as you mentioned, Greg, is Bruton from 1968. The Supreme Court held that in a hypothetical situation like the one that I just described, the Smith and Jones example, the prosecution may not introduce that confession naming Jones. It may not introduce Smith's out-of-court confession, a co-defendant's out-of-court confession, naming Jones. And it cannot do that even with a limiting instruction, even if the court instructed the jurors, hey, you can only consider this confession against the person who made it. You may not consider it against the co-defendant. And the basic logic of the court's opinion in Bruton was that the risk is too great, that the jurors as human beings will simply disregard their instruction, not to consider this extraordinarily powerful evidence against Jones and will, in fact, consider it against Jones, notwithstanding that instruction. So that's the basic essence of the Bruton rule. Then there's two more cases that applied that rule to different contexts. In 1987, in a case called Richardson versus Marsh, the Supreme Court held on the other side of the spectrum, that the prosecution may introduce a confession that has been redacted to omit all indication that anyone other than the confessing defendant had participated in the crime. So to return to our hypothetical, the prosecutor could admit a confession that says only I was the person driving the car the night the victim was shot. That would be permissible. Then the third case is, is, is from 1998, Gray versus Maryland. The Supreme Court held that the prosecution may not introduce a confession that refers directly to the existence of the non-testifying co-defendant, even with a redacted name. So this would be like if you, in our hypothetical, where uh, Smith says, I was driving the car, but Jones was the shooter. You can't take that confession and simply delete Jones's name and replace it with the bracketed word deleted or something like that. And introduce the confession. And the logic here is the jury, the jurors are smart. They're going to understand that simply reading a confession that refers to deleted was the shooter is by implication the person who's sitting next to the defendant at counsel table. Uh, And that that raises all of the same problems as Bruton. So the question presented in this case is where the facts here, which are a little bit different than any of those prior fact patterns sit, and whether it's more like Bruton or more like Richardson.
1: So before we get into sort of where this case fits along um, those line of cases that you set up, one question I have is, if the government wants to avoid all these problems, why doesn't it just separate the trials? I mean, you worked for the government. So what are the concerns that are going on there?
2: Sure. So that's obviously an option that's available to the government in any of these cases. Um, And the defendants in these cases will very often argue that that's exactly what should happen. Now, there are pretty significant efficiencies that are lost by taking a trial in where you have a type of conspiracy crime or a crime that where multiple defendants participated in the crime together, including in the hypothetical that I just described, which actually, frankly, is not that different from the actual facts of this case. But um, when you have multiple defendants who work together to commit a crime, the same evidence is going to be generally admissible against both of them. I, I think the government has a pretty strong interest in avoiding the need to have serial retrials. You also, that that serial retrials create the possibility um, of inconsistent verdicts, which uh, I think is not good from the standpoint of our system. Um, and so both both for efficiency reasons and for sort of reasons of fundamental fairness, uh, the government would generally prefer to try everybody who's involved in a crime together.
3: So in this case, as I understand it, the Mr. Samia's name was redacted. Um, what is the argument, or maybe I can ask you, what did the lower court find? Why did the lower court find that nonetheless, there was not a confrontation clause problem here?
2: Sure. So maybe let me just spend a minute to talk about the specific facts of Samia, this case. This case involves a murder in the Philippines. There were three defendants who were tried in a joint trial. Two co-defendants, Samia's co-defendants, confessed essentially to having been involved in the murder uh, and uh, had a defense on other grounds related to jurisdiction. One of those co-defendants named Stilwell named Samia, the petitioner here, as the shooter. Now, the prosecution introduced Stilwell's confession against him, against Stilwell, but it redacted Samia's name and instead referred only to the, quote, other person who had shot the victim. Um, And the trial court also instructed the jury that it should consider that confession only against Stilwell, not against Samia. But what happened here and what gives rise to the question presented in the case is that the prosecution also in the context of the trial introduced other evidence that understood in context linked Samia as the unnamed accomplice who had been mentioned in the confession. So the co-defendant Stilwell testified, remember he, you know, he refers to the person who shot the victim as the quote other person, Stilwell also testified that he had traveled with this quote other person to the Philippines and that he had lived with him in a condominium. The government later introduced evidence that Samia had traveled with Stilwell to the Philippines and had lived with him there. And so the base, Samia's argument to the court, uh, to the trial court and the court of appeals, was, look, even if the confession itself doesn't directly identify me or implicate me, when you put that confession together— with the gu- prosecutor's other argument and evidence that I am, quote, the other person mentioned, it's obvious that Stillwell is testifying that I, Samia, was the person who shot the victim. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals rejected Samia's argument in this case, and it found that because the confession itself did not name him and did not directly incriminate him it was admissible. The court understood that to be the requirement of Bruton, that the confession within the Four Corners does not directly implicate the defendant, Samia, in the crime. And the court held that it was irrelevant that there was other evidence admitted in the context of the trial that made the confession incriminating against Samia.
1: So the United States argues that a more nuanced test like the one that Samia's is- putting forward would be too hard for courts and prosecutors to apply. And your brief really tries to argue against that. And so I'm wondering what you argue courts and prosecutors should be looking at for some guidance with applying this test.
2: Sure. So one of the points we tried to make in our brief was to draw on the extraordinary wealth of experience of federal defenders all across the country who have lived with this issue across multiple cases and talk about how it's really played out in real cases on the ground. Uh, and I, the point that we you know, wanted to bring to the court's attention is that lower courts since Bruton, since Richardson, since Gray, have consistently understood that the context matters, of a, the context of a whole trial matters to determining whether an out-of-court confession is incriminating. And thus, fundamentally, in the, in the Sixth Amendment's terms, whether the defendant is being accused of a crime, whether there's a witness that has been, been presented against the defendant, that that defendant has no opportunity to cross-examine. Um, and I think the way we've seen this play out in a number of real cases, is that courts consistently look to the facts on the ground and the the natural inferences that jurors would draw from the evidence that they're seeing. They look at things like, how many defendants are on trial? Um, What is the arguments that the prosecution has made? Has the confession been redacted in such a way as to make it obvious that sort of any competent, ordinary, fair-minded juror would understand, in the context of the trial as a whole, that the confession is referring to the defendant. I think the basic essence of our position is that jurors don't consider confessions in isolation. They consider them in the context of the trial as a whole. That's exactly what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to consider all the evidence that comes before them. And so when you're thinking about whether a defendant like Samia has had an opportunity to confront the witnesses against him, you have to properly take account of the full context of the trial evidence, not purely the way that the confession has been redacted.
3: My, Michael, I'm curious. Um, as I read the the court papers, and maybe you you disagree with me, but there wasn't didn't seem to me to be a clear lower court split on this question. Why do you think the Supreme Court is taking it up? Well, I think that the confrontation
2: clause is an issue that um, has. Been of interest to many justices over the years. I think Kimberly alluded to this at the outset. Justice Scalia uh, famously was wrote many of the most important modern precedents on the confrontation clause, um, and I think that at, this is clearly a court that cares about the text of the Constitution, that cares about the original meaning of the Constitution. One of the things that's fascinating in the case is that the government and the petitioner have very different accounts of the history and the way that the Confrontation Clause was applied um, in the founding era and throughout the 19th century. Um, Those are arguments that I think are of interest to the justices on the current court. And I think the court may well have thought that this is an issue that we clearly see arising uh, in many instances. That's one of the points that our brief demonstrates, just how frequently a fact pattern that implicates Bruton comes up in criminal trials. And I think the court uh, was was clearly persuaded by petitioners showing that um, allowing the government to have the opportunity to redact the confession, but then sort of make, make prominent use of it at the trial and make it a feature of the presentation is sort of an end run around um, the Bruton rule and around the text, the textual commitment in the Bill of Rights that every defendant gets the opportunity to confront what might be the most important witness against him, some of the most powerful evidence in his case.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you on and for breaking down this case. Um, Hopefully we'll bug you again and have you on.
0: Thanks very much for having me. And that's it for today's Cases and Controversies. You can follow along with what Kimberly and Greg grew up to at our website, news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening.
3: Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C., When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show, On the Merits, and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com podcasts.